been with us. We're in Mark 11. Uh, Mark 11. Last week we took our study and we entered into the last phase of Jesus' ministry, which is one-third of the Gospel of Mark. And this is that Passion Week, as we call it. The Passion Week begins, remember, with that one event on Sunday. It's the triumphal entry where Jesus comes marching into the city and the crowds are going crazy. And the reason that he is doing this is because it's at the time of the Passover season. And again, we have to back up and just say, okay, the setting is very, very important. The Passover would be that national holiday, that their Independence Day in the Jewish thinking. That would be a religious as well as a civil holiday for them. And there's going to be a lot of different individuals that are going to come into the city. In fact, in, um, in Josephus' writing, he says that in 66 AD, the year that the temple was finally completed, the one that Herod's been building all through the lifetime of Jesus Christ, when he said that that was completed, according to Josephus, they sacrificed that day or that week 255. 55,000 lambs. And they estimate 8 to 10 people would each be represented by one lamb. So you're talking 2.5 million people coming into the city that normally wouldn't have that many. Again, how they were able to handle those types of great crowds, nobody really knows. And so Josephus might be a little bit suspect as far as his numbers. But the point is that tens of thousands of people would come flocking into the city and there would be this huge amount of folk. And it was always in that March, April, in that springtime time that we call Easter, they call Passover. And uh, the people would come in, and remember how they would set up. They were told that they would have to celebrate Passover within the city walls. That's out of the book of Deuteronomy. We'll talk more about that on Sunday. But uh, all these people would come in, and so they would make pilgrimages. They would come into the city. They would probably take care of some arrangements. You know, if they get there on a Saturday or, or on that Sunday, excuse me, they get there, take care of their housing arrangements for when they do the Passover meal, and the majority of people didn't stay in the city. They would do what Jesus did. He stayed in Bethany, just a few miles outside the city at the home of Mary, Martha, uh, Martha and Lazarus, and uh, the people would then traverse back and forth during the daytime, or people would be with family, friends outside the city, inside the city, or the majority of people would just camp out. And so what would happen is they'd do their business, be in the temple, do their shopping, and uh, get the lamb, get everything right away for the celebration. Uh, and I'm sure they got knickknacks, whatever. And uh, then what they would do at night, they would leave the city, and then the gates would be closed, and then they'd come back in. And so you have this constant activity of people that are going back and forth. And in that setting, we come to Monday morning. Jesus has Sunday gone through the, the procession. The people have cheered him. And remember at the end of the story in, that Mark records when Jesus comes into the city in verse 11 of, of chapter 11. He goes into the temple and he just surveys the situation and then he leaves and goes out of the city and goes to Bethany. Well, now we're on Monday morning. And Monday morning, there's uh, the episodes that start reading in verse 12 down to about verse 26. And you can break them into three different, three different events in the course of that day. The first is that Jesus comes in, and we read about it in verse 12. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. It goes on and says, And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, <clears throat> No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. They come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, 
Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when evening was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, that is going back into the city, they saw the fig tree dried up by the roots. And Peter, recalling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. There is more to the story. We won't probably get to it, but we'll pick it up next week. But in that setting... It's those three events, the cursing of the tree, there is his condemnation of all that's going on in the temple, and then the story basically concludes with his challenge to the disciples to be more involved in prayer. I find it very interesting that a number of scholars, quote-unquote, are very upset about this text. They are bothered by this text. They are upset by what Jesus did. Because they look at it and they find it to something very, very non-typical, atypical of Jesus Christ, that he would have a miracle of destruction, where most all of his miracles are miracles of, of bringing something to its fullness or recovery, except for there's one close miracle, and that is when he cast the, swine, the demons into the swine and they destroyed. But this is a very direct time, and the only one in the Gospels, where he destroyed something. And so some authors are very, very upset about it. I don't know where they stand on their issues of peoples and trees and things like that, but let me quote a couple of them. Uh, Joseph Klausner writes this, The cursing of the fig tree is a gross injustice on the tree which was guilty of no wrong. William Barclay, who does a wonderful job in history and giving you context, not so much on his theology. The story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a childlike petulance in his conduct. Uh, A fellow by the name Manson said this, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more, more usefully expended in forcing a crop of good figs out of season. And as it stands, it is simply incredible that Jesus would do this. Bertrand Russell, who is an atheist, wrote this, He says, Jesus is full of vindictive fury. And he wrote of the Lord saying, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history after I read this story. Wow, those people are really defensive of a tree. Now, me, I don't know about you, it's kind of like, so what? Okay, you know, if he killed a tree, you know, and maybe that's my lack of, you know, sensitivity towards the ecology. But Jesus in this story is criticized quite a bit. It's going to come back. It's going to, he's going to be criticized. And some will misunderstand the story. So let's kind of walk through the text. And let's look exactly at what is happening. And let's make sure that you and I fully understand why did he destroy the tree. Was he mad at the tree? Was he angry with the tree because he didn't get his fast food order from the tree? So I'm never going to do business with you anymore? You know, I'll blow you out of the water. If that was the case, a lot of fast food places would be destroyed. Okay. And so Jesus, if we just kind of walk through, um, can we start off with this? Let's just talk about the character of Jesus. And if you just highlight a few things. As the story that we just read, what in the story shows you his humanity, or let's use the theological term, his incarnation? Is there anything in this story that you look at and say, yes, there is, Jesus is very evidently a human being that has the, the 
um, the hindrances, the lacks that we experience. What's that? He's hungry. <clears throat> and, and that's important. Okay, though it's, it's important to the story. But it's, it's a fact that in this story, we're seeing Mark presenting Jesus not only as somebody who's divine, as we'll see in a moment, but he's going to pre- present his humanity as well. He's hungry. Just like you and I, he has the same sensations and the same um, physical battle struggles needs that we have. Anything else that shows that Jesus, his humanity came to the forefront in this story? has to do when he when he's approaching the fig tree what's that okay where do you get the happy okay that might be a problem with the, the translation okay then but you're on the skin you're on the right word it says and seeing the fig tree afar off having leaves he came if haply he might find anything thereon what is haply it is a perhaps, okay? And that's an old English word that a lot of us aren't familiar with. He is, it's the idea that he didn't know there was figs on that tree. He wasn't certain if there was figs. Perhaps he could find trig, figs on that tree. And he came and he found nothing on the leaves. The question that is, why didn't Jesus know ahead of time? Is there a humanity in here that Jesus was expecting the figs on there and they weren't there? Yeah. Okay, there's that aspect, but at the same time, is there a divine aspect in this story? Where do you see the divinity of Jesus truly portrayed? His control, his power, his lordship. Go a little bit further. Not just the fig tree and his first encounter with it, but take it even further. He curses the fig tree, and when he curses the fig tree, what happens to the fig tree? Okay, it dies. If you go all the way through, if we look down at verse 20, it dried up by its roots. And verse 21, the fig tree is withered away. In what period of time did this fruit, this tree that had the, that looked like it was a fruitful tree, it had growth on it. In how short a period of time was this tree a goner? Okay, within 24 hours, basically. Okay, from morning to morning. And so there's a lordship there. There is also lordship presented in the fact that when he goes into the city, how does he present himself as the Lord God to these people? Anything he did or said that the Jewish crowd, by the hundreds, the thousands, what did he do that would clearly say he is master, he is Lord? Or say. Okay, when he goes into the temple, he takes ownership by his verbiage. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 6. And it's a clear quote from a passage in the Old Testament where Yahweh was speaking. And so he is claiming ownership of the temple. Well, if you were a Jew in that time, who do you know owns the temple? God, okay, yes, okay, the Caiaphas and Annas and their household, they're, they're in charge and they've got their bazaar and they've got their business, but actually everybody theologically knows this is God's house, okay? Not only did he say that, but what action indicates he's in charge? Yeah, he's cleansing. He goes in and he's taking charge of it. And, and I find what's interesting is he is so involved in taking charge, 
that the other people who are in charge, they're intimidated by him. His sense of authority is really, it's, it's at the forefront. And so you have in here, you have Jesus showing his humanity in the story. We have Jesus representing his divinity. But there's one factor that shows up that I think we want to pause on. This we, we want to focus on. His emotional state. Okay, Jesus' emotions are at a, at a forefront here. There is no hiding his emotions. Is he upset, according to this passage? Is he is he uncontrollably upset. No, and I think there's a difference. People have, and some of his critics, like we just read a few moments ago, he's like a petulant child that is having a temper tantrum and he wants to destroy the tree. That is not at all what he's doing. He is under self-control, but very clearly Jesus has emotional motivations here. If you had to um, describe him, would you say he's a passive individual or an aggressive individual? At this moment. He's very aggressive. He's very aggressive. He is very forceful. He is exercising um, uh, a character and a conduct that intimidated all of his critics. And by the way, as we'll see in the story, he blocks the way through the temple. And people didn't get through. And so for him to take charge of that temple, is he's, he's, he's presented himself. But if there's one, one area that I think is really important for us to just think about, it's not an uncontrolled anger, but if I can throw it out this way, Jesus portrays a real hatred here. A real divine hatred for some things that are going on. He has an anger, a holy anger, that is really that he is upset by some things that are being done within the religious system. And so if we can take that and just run with that for a little bit and follow through the text, let's make a couple comments about that and explore it for for a few moments. I'm going to put it this way. Jesus was emotionally charged against the religious activity that was going on. How so? Jesus cursed the religious people that put on a show but were really empty inside. He cursed religious people that put on a show but were really empty inside. What do we call those type of people? That they look one thing, but they're totally not it. Hypocrites. Okay. This setting is filled with hypocrisy. It starts with a tree. And it's interesting how Mark lays it out. The tree isn't a separate incident from the cleansing of the temple. They have to be understood and interpreted together because they go together. They're not only in context, but in their culture, they just blend glove in hand, hand in glove, how they put together. Let's talk about the tree for a few moments. The fig tree that was, and you do know this, okay? Historically, the fig tree on a number of occasions in the Old Testament was used to represent Israel. You have that in, let me quote you several of the passages if you want to write it down for your sake. But if you go through several passages, James chapter 8, Hosea chapter 9, Joel chapter 1, Micah chapter 7. In all of those different texts, they have where it talks about Israel being a fig tree. And how God would prune it, how God would curse it, or how God would, would build it up. And so when we come to the story where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, it just so happens that he comes to a fig tree. This fig tree appears to be providing fruit because it's blooming a lot of leaves early in the season. Understand the fig tree in that time and in that culture, that era, would not have leaves, first of all. It would have the buds for the figs, first of all. They would be growing. By the time that the 
that the fig would come to its maturity after several weeks, then the leaves would be there, and then the figs would have two or three different crops throughout the season. But usually, here we are, March, April, leaves aren't there unless it's an early blooming tree and would indicate by its blooms that they have figs. Now, the figs that aren't quite mature were called K-N-O-P-S, knops, and they were a bitter type of a fig. They were edible if you were really hungry, but they weren't tasty. And so they would be at, at least be there if there was the leaves and if something was wrong with the tree. But this tree gave every evidence of having lots of, of growth, lots of leaves, that its figs were already mature. And when Jesus comes to the tree, he finds no figs. It is showing itself from a distance, all kinds of fruitfulness, but in reality, it didn't have anything that could satisfy, that could help meet a need that was so important. So Jesus curses it. It dries up by the roots. The tree withers away. And then he is, now we will find that out the next day, but he cursed it at the moment. And his disciples heard the cursing. They have to put this together. Because then he marches right into Jerusalem. And he marches into Jerusalem, the the spiritual fig of, of the nations around the world. He goes into the temple, and does the temple have leaves showing on the, at a distance that there's religious activity going on here? Yes. It has feast days. It has a priesthood. It has all kinds of people coming in for a celebration. It gives every semblance that there is going to be spiritual nutrition. Understand the temple, that what would happen at this time. Not only would they do sacrifices, but during the day, during this week, and we forget this sometimes, but during the week, they would do a lot of classes They would do a lot of instruction for the people coming from outside the different area of Jerusalem. This was going to be a week that you could have a greenhouse effect on getting spiritual lessons, teaching, preaching, if you would, that around that temple area, you could get all kinds of theological discussions and and conversations going, and that was what's supposed to be happening in the temple proper. There was supposed to be activity that was going to feed the spirits and the souls of the pilgrims who come once a year. And this is going to be their spiritual highlight of the year. And so there's this this whole appearance of all of that happening, the people gathering, the music going on, the teachers being assembled. But when they get into the temple, does Jesus find the deliverance and the preparation, should put it backwards, the preparation and deliverance of spiritual food? What does he find? They aren't feeding the people, but what are they doing? They're fleecing the people. And so Jesus is appalled by this. This is, this is hypocrisy at its peak. This is uh, where, where Jesus is offended by it. And we have to go, because Mark's the only one that does this. Mark highlights one portion of what they were supposed to be doing. And it's found in verse 17. If you didn't underline it, you got to make sure you do. He taught saying, and by the way, the word he taught is he began to teach over and over and over again. It isn't a singular statement. It's the idea that this is something all this day Jesus is saying, Jesus is promoting. He said, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations is the key word, key phrase. It's to be called, of all nations, the house of prayer. And then he goes to Jeremiah, and he quotes from Jeremiah another statement. 
That is a statement of condemnation where he says, but you have made it a den of thieves. Interesting, those two texts. Both those texts in the Old Testament are where God is saying to the nation of Israel and to the teachers, especially in Jeremiah, he is talking about how he is going to come one day and he's going to examine, this is in the Jeremiah passage in particular, I'm going to examine the teachers and those who are responsible for instructing people in the word of God and I'm going to cleanse my temple of the false teachers. And so Jesus quotes that passage that says, in condemnation to the Old Testament teachers, that they have made the tabernacle, they have made the temple area, basically a den of thieves. And so Jesus, using the Old Testament, is saying to them that we have reverted back to something that is fruitless, and he is highly offended by this, by by the hypocrisy. And so you and I have to look at it and say, okay, he cursed the tree, and within 24 hours the tree is destroyed. In this context, he is cursing the nation of Israel. This is, say, around 30 AD. Let's just throw that for a figure. 30 AD. In how long will they be destroyed? Will they dry up by the root and wither away? What year is it that the nation falls? 70 AD. Can we just keep this thought going for a moment? We're supposed to be... And he uses the illustration. We are trees as well. He's the vine. We're the branches. What are we supposed to be doing? Go to John 15. Hold your finger here. But just keep this thought because this is important for you and I to remember that Jesus was so offended by hypocrisy that he cursed it. In John chapter 15, if you know this, you're well familiar with it. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the farmer, the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, what does God do? He takes it away, verse 2 of chapter 15. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it so that it may bring forth more fruit. Okay, good. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. And we all know what he, you know, when it came to Israel, were they abiding in God's word? No. Were they abiding in Messiah? No, they rejected it. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. We all got that. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. Okay, For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is what? Cast forth as a branch and withered. And men gather up those withered branches and do what with them? Okay. In this passage, he condemns the lack of fruitlessness. And so in the, even in the believers' lives. And so this is a consistency with Jesus Christ that he curses religious people who present themselves as one way, but they're something totally different. And so we have to, and you and I have to do this, we have to pause, look in the mirror and say, do I play the role of a hypocrite? Do I have the religious you know, garbs and conduct and words and music, but there's prayerlessness? Do I have the religious you know, amens and yes, I believe that, but I don't practice purity, I don't practice love, I don't practice forgiveness in my everyday life? Do, do you and I pretend here, but in private... We're something totally different. We, we, we come here and we want to present ourselves as family-oriented individuals. That we love our siblings, we love our parents, we love our spouses, we love our kids, <clears throat> and our homes are great. 
But is there a, a hypocrisy that your home actually is mayhem, confusion, and the lack of peace by the conflicts that are stirred up? You say, well, okay, I want to present here that I'm a wise individual, I do well at work, and I try to have a real good testimony at work, but your coworkers, they would scoff and laugh about your testimony. See, that's the type of hypocrisy that Jesus was highly offended about, that he was highly upset about, and that you and I have to say, wait a minute, am I what I present to you that I am? Am I real? Can I say before God, what you see is what I am? And God knows it, and I know it. God knows what you are, and you know what you are. And you and I have to pause and think, if we're playing a role of a hypocrite, Jesus curses that. And he does it with strong emotion. Not only does he curse the hypocrite, but can we expand this a little bit more? Jesus condemns religious people that are permeated with selfishness and greed. I think that's a, I, I don't think we're stretching the text. That Jesus curses religious people that are permeated with selfishness and greed. We, we've already alluded to this, so let's just fill in the gaps a little bit. When Jesus goes into the temple, he sees a lot of activity. But the activity that he sees in this religious compound is not as oriented to the teaching and the instruction in the Word of God as it is towards business. He is not condemning business. He isn't saying it's wrong for merchants to sell merchandise. That is not what this story is about. Well, what this story is about is what was happening in that place at that moment where if we understand history, right, and for you and me to glean, we have to go back, and most of you know this, but in those days, the priests were in charge. And all these pilgrims that are coming in, and so if, let's just take somebody here. The Jabras are going to come for worship on Passover time. And they have their own lamb that they're going to bring for the Passover offering. But they're going to travel all the way from Nazareth. The chances of that lamb possibly getting hurt in that journey of a week, they're pretty high. Okay, and so Lloyd sits down and thinks, you know what, instead of us taking one of our lambs, what we could do instead is travel to Jerusalem without the animal. And when we get to Jerusalem... We'll buy one, okay? There's shepherds around the hills of Bethlehem and the surrounding area raising sheep. They've been doing it for decades. Do you remember any other story that talks about them being in the fields? Okay. And so they could do it. But the priests had a system that you're familiar with. The priests would say, okay, I want to make sure I make my money here, and here's what I can do. Bob Knipe, I will work a deal with you. I don't want to get involved because I'm a priest. I'm going to be busy during Passover week because I'm supposed to be answering questions. I'm supposed to be taking care of sacrifices. But if you want, you can buy from me the right to be one of the animal handlers that people will recommend people go and see. So you give me $10,000, and that'll go into my pocket, and you can go, and anybody who comes to me, I'll send them your way. Okay, And so there's going, to be, there's going to be tens of thousands of people coming in, right? And a lot of them, if they do bring their animal, if I want to help him out, what might I say if Bob brings his lamb with him? Before I can sacrifice it, I have to inspect it. Well, very conveniently, I do what? I reject it. And I say, yours isn't acceptable, but I know some place where you can go and get a lamb 
that has already been pre-approved, inspected by number nine, you know, the tag in your pocket. And you go see Knipes Nursery. Okay, they have lambs. I'll guarantee they're going to be good. So he comes to you, and Bob, you're a huckster. You've got to make up that $10,000. What are you going to charge him? Big bucks. Big bucks, okay. Well, we know that historically they charge 16 times plus the amount of the animal normally. And even if they did a pigeon, let's just let's put a, the pigeon was your cheapest offering. If a pigeon costs 25 cents, a, a quarter normally, well, during Passover week, it would cost you four bucks. That's a lot of money. And a lot of these pilgrims didn't have that money. Remember, you have people like a Mary and Joseph and their family. They're not wealthy people, but they would come year after year. Some of those people, therefore, couldn't do all the sacrificing they wanted to because... Not, uh, yeah, I'm going to blame you. Bob's. Bob's nursery. Okay, night nursery. And so th- this, whole, this whole fiasco of a system was put in place. And then, oh, by the way, if you're going to buy a lamb, you have to use the right coins. Because remember, there isn't a common currency in, that, in Bible days. It wasn't. The Romans had some, but most every region could establish their own currency. And so I, the currency and the only one we'll accept in the temple for you to pay your temple dues, for you to buy from him the lamb, you have to use Jewish coins that we have approved. So if you come from Ono, and Ono has its Ono money, okay? We're not taking Ono money. You have to get Jerusalem money. So you're going to have to go yeah, and find, you go to Seth, Seth over here, he's got the money bank. And he's going to exchange your Ono coins for legitimate Jerusalem stamped coins. What are you going to charge? Uh, Higher, buddy. Not double. Usually 12 to 20%. A usury in order, whatever your surcharge, in order to exchange your coins. So you just dropped, you just dropped, you know, 20% of your buying power. This was just, this was a, a fabulous business system for who? The, the temple people. Who was getting, you know, who's getting their necks stood upon? It was, it was all the commoners like you, me, who had been the pilgrims traveling in. And so we come into this setting, and, and what are we going to do about it? What's that? You got to pay up. Okay, by the way, let me remind you. Did Jesus ever cleanse the temple of this stuff before? John chapter 3. Three years earlier, Jesus did the same thing. Did it last? No. No, because this system is so... What word do you want to put in here? It's so corrupt. It's lucrative. Yeah, and you don't take away people's monies. Okay. It's just ingrained into the culture. And to the most, you know, and the people in charge, they aren't changing it because they're the ones who are getting, you know, they're getting the benefit at the most. And so you have this whole corrupt system that's going on, and Jesus is walking in, and you know, and, and by the way, just just as a historical note, do you know what day that they chose the lambs for the sacrifice? It's usually on Monday. What day does Jesus walk into the temple and see all the business? It's Monday. So what kind of activity is at the temple on Monday 
when that's the day to shop for your lamb for all the pilgrims? What do you think the temple looks like? Busy? Noisy? Okay, put it in context. This is shopping day. Okay, this is Black Friday. Okay? Or this is, what's the uh, online day? Cyber, cyber, whatever. Okay, this is the day. This is, this is the day of the week that the shopping is taking place. So that temple is absolutely buzzing. Now, you have to set up a place to do this. And so the biggest area in the temple that they used for the marketplace was going to be the court of the Gentiles. Okay, it's the court of the Gentiles. Keep in mind, what did he say? This was supposed to be a house of prayer called for by all nations. That's a key phrase. And so in that one area of the temple, that's, that's a court of the Gentiles. This would be our area. None of us could go past this area would be the Jews. This is the business proper area. This is where the animals are being sold. This is where the money is being exchanged. Okay, now let's, let's just do a little bit of Mideastern thinking. Bob would not be his normal low tone of voice. Okay, and you're doing business dealings in some of these countries. What do you do? You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna say twenty percent. I'll give you fifteen percent, and you're gonna be. There's gonna be a lot of this um, barking, bickering. There's gonna be a lot of verbal, you know, noise going on. You're gonna want the customers. You're gonna, you're, they're gonna barter with. They're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of, yeah. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. So all that is taking place. And then there's a phrase in this text that, again, to get our context. It says in verse 16, and he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Understand the temple, and where it was located on the east side of the city at this time, that you could enter the temple, and this would be the most easternmost wall was going to be a temple wall. If you were coming from uh, from um, uh, Mount, um, uh, Mount of Olives. If you're coming Mount of Olives from Bethany, one of the main routes, you're coming this direction. You're going to enter the city right by the temple. And so you get into the, into the, te- the city and you're going to run into the temple wall. So as you come in from the outside, there's the second wall, be the temple wall. And you're going to have to go all the way around these narrow alleys to get to downtown. Or you could enter the temple... The, the, you could enter that door in the court of the Gentiles and go all the way across to that door and save yourself time by just a shortcut. So people are coming in with animals, caravans. People are pilgrims. They're coming into the city to find places to do the meal. So they've got the kids, they've got everything. And this is, anybody can come through this because this is the court of the Gentiles, so any of us could be there. So, in the middle of all this, all of a sudden, we got this whole group of people right here traversing right through the crowd and headed out that way. Oh, and by the way, as they pass through the temple, they're going to be very quiet and respectful because they're taking a shortcut through the temple. You know that's not the case. Because of all the noise, they're going to talk about the stuff they're going to do on the other side of the wall. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Um, let, let's, let's not get carried away with interpretations. Okay. Uh, modern day, we get carried away sometimes with the application. 
Does that mean that the temple was only supposed to be prayer? And then that nobody was supposed to do anything but pray. Therefore, when we come to church, if we're not going to do what they did, we should walk in this building and only pray. And don't make any noise. Is that what that phrase means? I don't think so either. It's a, it's a euphemism. It's an idea. This is supposed to be a place of worship. Did Jesus ever stand in the temple and converse with his disciples? Did he ever watch who was putting money into the plate? He did, and he commented on it. So to say, well, no, in the temple, they're supposed to just be praying and be very quiet. So we were taught when we go to church, when you walk in, be very silent because you might wake up God. They didn't say that, but that's the way I always felt. Okay. But it, so let's not misinterpret the passage and say, okay, when we come to church, therefore we should only pray and shame on any of you who ever talk about the weather or sports. And worst of all, you could talk about politics. Yeah. That, that, that's an over-application. Or, or to say this, never, never in a church should they sell anything. You know, God forbid that we sell a book in church. Well, this was supposed to be a place of instruction, okay? This, this court, they were to be teaching. They were supposed to be instructing. The problem isn't that they sold anything. The problem is that they, they were ripping people off. They weren't concerned about instruction to say, hey, wait a minute, we got a good book that we want to give for spiritual instruction. We'll sell it to you for our cost, that is not the same thing as what's happening in this text. So let's not run rampant and, and you know, swing the pendulum. Let's keep it in the context of the story and the application. There was no teaching going on. There was no instruction going on. There was no opportunity for the Gentiles to have a time of prayer, a time of meditation, a time of instruction. Because let's be honest, if you're sitting here at this pew, you got it here. Lou, you're in this pew. And all this activity, are you going to kneel down? You would, what would you be, I don't, I'm putting it on the spot. What would we be careful of kneeling in? Okay. Animals do stuff, okay? There's activity going on. And even if I'm kneeling down and I want to have a time of meditation and prayer, does it ever happen that some little kids could be running through the shortcut and wipe me out? Does that ever happen in a church building? Okay? It's all of that. And, and by the way, if you want to have a real focused meditation time, it does help that there's not this roar of noise that could, you know, just going on around you. And so that's what's going on. And, and Jesus is offended by the fact that instead of reaching out... Oh, by the way, you know that Jeremiah passage that I referred to? That he says you made it a den of thieves? In that passage, it predicts that when Messiah comes... This is the way the Jews interpreted That when Messiah comes, he would cleanse the temple of all that is bad so that they could really do worship right. They interpreted to say he would get rid of the Gentiles out of the temple. When Jesus actually comes, he, does, he isn't against the Gentiles. He's, he's for them. He's saying, you were supposed to be a beacon of light to the world, and you've become a flickering flame. 
You're not achieving. You're supposed to be the place where people would say, of all nations, this is where we can meet and learn about God, and it's not happening. And he was highly offended by that which was greed and selfishness had taken over the focus of their priority of ministry. And it, it, it angered him. It upset him. I wonder if he isn't as upset today when he looks at some of the way that churches conduct themselves. Right? Do, do any churches, are any churches all about making money? Yes. Are they about selling spiritual blessings? Yes. Can, we, can churches get so busy in can membership? Can people within church get so busy with making money that they forget prayer and worship and learning the word of God themselves? Yes. And so we have to look and say, well, wait a minute. Okay, how do we, how do we, how do we approach this? What do we do with this? We need to remember for our sakes, you know, as a church, I, I don't see where we're violating this in the sense of, you know, we're so focused on, and maybe that's, maybe that's our problem. Maybe I'm just blind to it. But I don't know of us selling indulgences. <laughs> I don't know of us doing things financially with bazaars and, you know, raffles and all that kind of stuff. We purposely have said we won't get involved with that. So we don't get distracted by that, that that takes over. Can those types of things take over a ministry? Yeah, yeah. And we've, we've tried, we've even in our constitution said we will never do that. We're not going to do that stuff. You know, great. I, I love the bake sales, especially when they bake things with the M&M chocolates, you know, chocolate M&Ms with peanuts in it. That, that's the best part. No coconut. But, you know, that's great. But I don't think we should be doing bake sales. And get distracted and say, we're so busy doing bake sales, we have no time to share the gospel. Well, that would be shame on us, right? So we can sit here and go, okay, we're, we're good in that area. But maybe we, maybe we aren't. Maybe we have to stop and say, maybe I have to stop and say and ask myself, which I do, do I preach for financial benefit? Do I preach and do what I'm doing for a love of the Lord and love of the word or just to get a paycheck from you? Do we operate within our, one another's relationships in such a way that I want to see how it profits me? Do we at times get so caught up with busyness that sometimes we put aside worship? Sometimes wealth takes over our worship, our time of worship. And we say, I don't have time to go to the modern-day temple of worship. I don't have time for that because big bucks are more important. There's some challenging thoughts here that says Jesus curses religious individuals who are more focused on selfishness and greed than making sure we communicate the word of God to all nations. Our priority is not us just making ourselves happy. Our priority has to be reaching out with the gospel. And there's some challenging lessons in here that say, okay, I've got to examine, make sure we're not being hypocritical. And I think most of us would sit here and say, yeah, okay, we're, we're not where they're at. And that's good. But we want to just examine and say, okay, I want to be cautious. Where am I at? Do I have any of these tendencies? Because I don't want to offend the Lord. 
And then he goes on into that third part of this passage where he challenges them to be faithful in prayer. I want to leave that for next week. We'll pick up, but it ties together with the whole story. I appreciate you listening and following along and your input, but take it some serious thought. Examine your heart, your spirit, your mind, your activities to make sure that you aren't falling under that curse or disappointments of Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form. Speaking of prayer, okay, that's one of the activities that we want to do. We've got 15 minutes before the kids are dismissed. Let's make sure that we take advantage of what we can to be praying one for another and for those many prayer requests given. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Let's go to prayer.